welcome to episode 24 of ESPN's The Far Post podcast. My name is Marissa Lordanik. I'm so glad you've joined us once again. I'm joined by my two favourite non-Anna friends when it comes to women's football. I'm joined by Angela Christian-Wilkes and Sam Lewis. No Anna Harrington this week, but we're sure she'll be back to talk more football next weekend. But um. You've got the three of us. It's going to be fantastic. So let's crack straight into it with some You Love to See It. Sam, what did you love to see this weekend? This weekend, I loved to see my one and only Claire Wheeler being an absolute boss in Sydney FC's win over Adelaide United on Sunday afternoon. Uh, She finally looks like she has settled into this midfield and she has found the the kind of freedom that she has always flourished in, uh, in the system that Ante Juric is implementing there. She was all over the park. She was involved in the build-up play. She was involved in the defence. She was just outstanding. And uh, talking to Ante Juric after the match, I asked him whether he thought that Claire Wheeler should be considered a a future Matilda. And his response was, she should be a Matilda now. So those are pretty big raps. I know it's coming from the, you know, the coach of the club she plays for, but, uh, you know, considering who she is and where she's come from, I think that that's a pretty special thing to, uh, to hear. So Claire Wheeler being a boss, the return of the Claire Wheeler Stan, Claire Wheeler Sam, you love to see it. The Claire Wheeler, Sam. Honestly, find you someone who loves, you know, Claire Wheeler as much as Sam loves Claire Wheeler. Find someone <laughs> like that for yourselves, friends. Um, Angela, what did you love to see this weekend? Uh, I love to see Brisbane scoring some some banging goals. Um, so the first, actually, it's kind of music themed, I realised. Um, so those who don't know, Marissa is a big ABBA fan. First one. Take a chance on me. Take a chance, take a chance, take a chance, chance. Olivia Chance scoring from way out. So there was like, sorry, that was. It was excellent. I'm going to delete that. No, you're not. So great. You must continue. From my memory. (laughs) Anyway, so um, Mariel Hecker got the ball near the line and it just bobbled around a little bit and Isabel Dalton cut her back to Olivia Chance outside the 18 yard and she just goes doof and it's in the goal top left beautiful stuff and then Emily Gilnick was like you know what if she can do that I can do that but further from halfway or halfway there I'm gonna call it um I'll leave Marissa to edit in my previous mistakes there and she basically, from just over the halfway line, saw Lily Alfield off her line. Boom. Just soared in beautifully. And Lily Alfield, to her credit, did get a hand on it, but it sort of caught off balance and it just sort of, yeah, fell behind her. Um, so, yeah, two, two lovely goals for Brisbane. Um, the fourth goal, I will leave Marissa to go into that because it was very special. It was it was very special and it builds on my how good from I want to say a couple of weeks ago now. Um, Larissa Crummer scored a goal and that's I, I feel like I can't stress it enough or like explain how important it was enough. Like it was far and away the least spectacular goal you've ever seen. It was a tap in from inside the six yard box and especially 
as Angela just mentioned, that was a game that, you know, the order of the day was spectacular and this goal was absolutely not. But after 758 days, Larissa Crummer was not only back on the pitch, she was scoring a goal after breaking her leg in just the most horrific way, having to endure five surgeries, infections, just everything that could have possibly gone wrong went wrong. And for her to now be in a place where she's fit enough, she's healthy enough, she's mentally ready to be back out on the pitch and then topping it all off with getting back to what we we all know she can do, which is scoring an absolute bucket load of goals. You know, she's a former golden boot winner with Melbourne City. So the fact that she was back on the pitch and happened to score a goal as well, it was just, it made you all warm and fuzzy and tingly inside. Like it was just, it's such a good story. And I was absolutely ecstatic for her. So Larissa Crummer scoring the least impressive goal of the lot, but arguably, you know, the, the winner in my heart, you absolutely love to see it. And you love to see another full round of W League action, which we will crack into right now. We started things off on Thursday night with the Wanderers beating Perth Glory 1-0. It was Perth's first game in what feels like forever. And the result kind of, you you expected it. Sam, you were at the game. What did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was sort of the game that we all expected, I think, from not just from Perth, but also perhaps from the Wanderers. Um Considering everything that Perth has gone through, it, it's pretty amazing that they only kept Western Sydney to 1-0. Um, but again, I, I mean, I, I think we've spoken about this in the past. These two teams seem to be struggling from with the same issue, which is that we don't really know where their goals are coming from. Western Sydney do have Lena Karmas as their sort of dedicated central striker, but she wasn't used in this game against... Perth. Instead, uh, there was Briley Henry, the junior Matilda, who got her first start uh, for the side. And eventually it was Irish international Julianne Russell who got the goal, who I think has been perhaps one of the Wanderers' better attacking players, um, particularly in the last sort of two or three games. She's become really deadly down that left wing. And Tegan Collister as well, who came across from Newcastle this season, um, I thought was really impressive down the right. I was able to, to get the better of uh, both of Perth's um, fullbacks a number of times. So, and yeah, I mean, again, Perth have been not just shortchanged in terms of the circumstances that they can't control, border closures, um, the, you know, the distance of travel, the fact that so many of their squad are still young players who are at school, so many of them have jobs but also the injury to Gemma Crane, uh, who tore her hamstring a couple of weeks ago. You know, she, from the, the first couple of games that she had for Perth, she looked like she would be sort of the Sam Kerr type of figure um, in that forward line. She would probably be, probably be the one that they would rely on to score a lot of goals. And so when she went down uh, and the news came out that she would be out for the rest of the season, you know, I, I think that was sort of it for Perth. I think uh, they didn't really have much of a, an idea of how to uh, respond to that. And, you know, this was the first game back from their sort of their second lockdown. Um, and I think it's sort of, it's frustrating because after the one-all draw with Canberra, I thought that Perth were looking pretty, pretty good considering everything that had happened. But they, this this sort of the snap lockdown that they had to go through after that, I think took the wind out of their sails quite a bit. And so it almost felt like this was the first game of their season in some ways. Um, 
and it, it felt like that a little bit. They, they seemed quite rusty. Um, they seemed a little bit off the pace in terms of their physical fitness. And of course, they're going to be that way because they haven't played nearly as many games as the rest of the competition have. Um, but yeah, I mean, despite that, I think that uh, it seems like they're still, um, they're still improving. They seem to have the sort of the, the, the basic principles that Alex Aparkas is wanting to instill in them um, quite down pat in terms of their forward build-up play and things like that. But again, lack of a centre forward is sort of making that final pass, that final decision is just not really clicking. Um, and I'll be curious to see whether it ever does. But yeah, I mean, a good on Western Sydney. It's their second win of the season. They uh, jumped up a number of places uh, on the table now. They, they currently go into, into the next round in sixth, which is really great for them. Um, and it's a good confidence builder as well for a lot of those players who I think were getting a little bit frustrated that they weren't able to get anything out of the games despite playing really well the last couple of weeks. So, yeah, overall, uh, probably the game that we all expected and be interesting to see uh, how the two of them kick on. Person interesting one. So on the broadcast, it was mentioned that I think during that kind of three-week lockdown, they only managed to play one game and I think it was against like the Perth Glory Boys Academy side so it it really is as you said almost unfair to expect them to just kind of keep whatever little momentum they had from the start of the season and then bring it into these next couple of games um we finally have the the rest of the season's fixturing sorted which I can only imagine was a monumental task undertaken by the folks at Leagues HQ and whatnot, but Perth have an absolutely bananas next month, month and a bit. They've got basically a game every 4.2 days. They've got four three-day turnarounds and three games in six days to kick off March. So they have an absolutely hectic run to the end of the season. And we kind of discussed it last week. We weren't sure that they were going to finish their season. So the fact that they, it looks like they will is awesome, but it's going to be ridiculously difficult to kind of get through that and we'll see how they manage the squad, how they manage uh, all the kind of moving parts. I think that's a good way to think about Perth's season this year. Um, you know, they, they, are, they have so many handicaps coming into it that it's it's almost unfair to look at their results on the table and make assumptions or judgments about what they've been doing. Um, especially because, you know, they, they came into this season almost not even knowing if they were going to be playing or not. You know, they had 10 players signed three weeks before kickoff. They had their head coach signed only a couple of weeks before that as well and had to do a lot of player recruitment from inside his hotel room during quarantine you know so all this sort of stuff you know when we when we think and talk about Perth down into the future for the rest of the season I think it's important to remind ourselves that you know they they have just been given the the short straw in so 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 many ways but it doesn't necessarily mean that their season is a write-off I don't think um, because I think that they're they're laying down a lot of really important groundwork at the moment to build on in future seasons. And we're seeing a number of players getting really important opportunities who will almost definitely be playing a much larger role in Perth and perhaps in, in Matilda's squads going into the next sort of two to three years as well. Um, so that's when I, when I watch Perth now, that's, that's what I watch for. I don't necessarily watch for results, even though I know results matter, 
but I watch for the, the, the smaller improvements and the smaller decisions that are being made, which hopefully indicate uh, some improvement over multiple seasons, not just multiple rounds. And I guess it'll be interesting to see if, um, I'm sure Perth are very aware of the circumstances that they find themselves in and how that's going to affect those numbers for the rest of the season. But I imagine that could also be quite a freeing thing as well for players to be like, okay, we're on the back foot, but that's all right. I can focus on what I'm doing right and what I can improve and they can just build on playing better instead of necessarily like necessarily having to focus on those. Yeah. Getting those wins or whatever it might be. So not necessarily, I don't mean to frame it as like giving up on winning or anything like that, but having that as less of a focus and being able to focus on the development side of things as well will be really awesome to see. Um, as you said, Sam, and watching for that, that stuff instead of the, yeah, the result. As we mentioned, it wasn't Perth's only game of the weekend. They then backed it up and travelled up to Brisbane and faced the the almighty roar. They lost 4-0, as we mentioned. It was bangers galore. It was a big game for the narrative. Um, but, yeah, I, I said to you guys beforehand with Perth that it felt like they're not necessarily bad and that's kind of reassuring, but uh, a team that is definitely not bad are Brisbane Raw. Like, they're getting scarier and scarier and we kind of look sillier and sillier with our kind of early season um, talk of the Brisbane draw and, oh, but what about if it's just not clicking and blah, 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 blah. So how else can we describe and kind of praise this Brisbane side? Like, can we... Should we start talking about the the undefeated season for Brisbane Raw this this campaign? Yeah, I mean, I can't see, I can't see why not. I mean, I, I think that of all the teams now in the current form, if we are to draw draw conclusions from the last sort of perhaps two to three weeks, then Brisbane are absolutely favourites. Uh, perhaps not even just in an undefeated sense, but maybe even in a title sense. I mean, I'm a little bit cautious to make any sort of predictions because we thought Sydney were going to thump everyone and then they got thumped by Brisbane. But I will say that because Brisbane had their sort of not unfortunate but slow start to the season, you know, they haven't had it necessarily super easy. I think that that's going to build that resilience in terms of being able to continue in this form whereas Sydney you know maybe they got a little bit ahead of themselves and that caught up with them having such a spectacular start to the season I'm not sure I'm not an athlete but you know I yes they should be like undefeated wouldn't be surprised but also this season is just wild so I'm not putting all my eggs in that basket such a liberal response being like mm, I'm not sure I'm just not going to make a decision either way <laughs> look I say it because you know trying to make you know solid statements and drawing conclusions in the dub is a fool's game and I am a fool so like this is this is what we're doing I'll be really interested to see the next two games they come up against Canberra and then they face Adelaide I think those are the two sides that Obviously, they need to get wins over in order to maintain their position on the ladder. But I feel like they have become, because of their positions on the ladder as well, they've sort of become benchmarks in a couple of ways. 
they present different kinds of challenges to this Brisbane Raw side that I don't think they have necessarily faced with the teams that they've played since they have started clicking. Um, I think we mentioned last week that one of the things that's so great and so terrifying about Brisbane is that they are such a multi-dimensional attacking side. And we saw that in their win over Perth. You know, we saw the variety of the goals and even against against Sydney, Sydney FC as well, the, the, the various uh, angles at which they can attack different sides, um, the different ways in which they can exploit the weaknesses of other teams. And I think Canberra and Adelaide pose uh, very different kinds of challenges in that respect. Um, and also they're coming up against some of the, the more, I guess, um, the, the more deadly attacking units and weapons in those two teams as well. So, yeah, I think that the next two games for Brisbane will be uh, probably be the turning point for their season. Um, not just because if they lose against either of those sides, those sides may leapfrog them on the table as well, um, depending on other results. But, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I'm, I'm, as a Sydney FC fan, I am very sad about Brisbane Raw becoming excellent. But as a W League fan, as a Matildas fan, I am so, so excited by what seems to be happening up there. Um, because the, the combination that Jake Goodship has produced in terms of the balance of players from senior Matildas to MPL players to young emerging uh, talent through MPL Queensland and sort of the, the youth uh, national teams as well, I think is a really nice model for other teams going forward. Um, and you see, like the last couple of weeks, you see exactly what that can look like when you get that balance right. Um, so yeah, it's it's great, and I, I think it's also worth pointing out that Emily Gilnick's two goals uh, against Perth also takes her above Michelle Heyman on the Golden Boot ladder. Uh, she currently sits on eight goals now, uh, with Heyman's stuck on six. Um, let's continue with the the last two games from this round of action. We had Newcastle hosting Melbourne Victory, and Victory got the Chockies with a two nil win. Angela, what did you make of this one? I yeah, I was. Surprised surprised that Newcastle didn't actually punish victory a little bit more um like I think yeah victory were the dominant side throughout and especially attacking wise but in the center like the midfield there got a little bit choppy at times and defensively as well there were a few little risky moments that Gabby Garten um covered really well so a lot of credit to her there um but yeah I at the end, yeah, at the end of the day, though, it's sort of the the result I would have expected um, from this game, especially they met just like two weeks ago um, with the result there. Um, and credit to Victory as well. They didn't let Newcastle back into the game this time around as well, which means that it would be an improvement on last time. Um, Kara Cooney-Cross goes without saying, but she's just continuing some excellent form this season and seeing Lisa Devanna start. I think that has boosted victory a little bit, but Annalie Longo coming back, that's so exciting to see as well because she really does bring something special to that that midfield. Yeah, it's pretty disappointing from Newcastle, I think. Um, I, I wrote about it in my ESPN column this week that this sort of felt like the game where they gave up a little bit, you know, on, on the sort of the wider project that is their season. Um, I mean, Melbourne victory were excellent and I think that this has been... The last couple of games from them have been particularly impressive just in terms of their off-ball work as well, the the pressing that they 
um, that they've been doing has been some of, I think, the most effective in the W League so far. Um, they, they press really high, really quickly and with numbers. And Newcastle were just flustered. They just weren't able to really play out of that very well at all. Um, Tara Andrews was almost completely marked out of the game, which is pretty difficult to do. Um, and yeah, I mean, the victory, they, they just, they were able to snuff out all of the kinds of possibilities that Newcastle had in terms of going forward. Um, I think it was also another good demonstration of, um, victories, as you mentioned, Angela, they're really impressive midfield because I, I, you know, I've been so, um, I've been really impressed with Newcastle's midfield over the last sort of probably four games since they, uh, since Ash Wilson arrived upon this combination of Alicia Bass, um, Rihanna Polisina and, and Cassidy Davis. And they've all worked really beautifully together um, and, and have sort of created a really good, really consistent engine there. But Victory's midfield just, you know, smacked them. You know, that was, they just did not have any room to breathe. And that's all credit to Victory. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I think, you know, Newcastle are now, they can still mathematically make finals, but I think based on the results and the form of the teams around them, it's looking pretty unlikely which is disappointing. But again, as we were talking about with Perth, I think maybe this is the start of a new project for Newcastle. They have been playing some of the best football that they've played in a couple of the years now. And I'm really enjoying what Ash Wilson is doing. I think the fact that Newcastle um, are making important moves quite similar to Adelaide in terms of giving more um, more time and more resources to the to the women's program. The fact that they have one of the only girls academies in Australia is really important in that respect as well, because you've got players like Tessa Tamplin who are starting to emerge from that environment. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm not I'm not writing off Newcastle as a project, I'm not writing off Newcastle as a club, but perhaps this season, like Perth season, it's it's just maybe a little bit impossible for them now. Um, but I think they're making some really important uh, decisions and really important moves at the moment that will set them up really well for future seasons. I was just going to say, I think victory are like at the other end of that. They were, they were suffering a couple of years ago, but this victory side is seeing the fruition of that development. As we know, these long-term dub projects take time, but when they start to bear fruit, it's, really important because Adelaide is that other team that has as you said suffered for a little while but now we're starting to see the the fruits of that kind of long-term project um yes they lost against Sydney on the weekend but I don't think it was a, a poor reflection on Adelaide by any means I thought Sydney were were thanks to Teresa Polias just kind of unstoppable at set pieces um Sam I know you were you were up there you you are I'm pretty sure the president of the Teresa Polias Appreciation Society um some some thoughts and feelings about Teresa Polias and just how bloody good she is because we don't talk about it enough <laughs> yes welcome everyone into our, our weekly uh convention of the Teresa Polias Fan Society I'm your host Samantha Lewis uh just let me get my gavel so that we can <laughs> open proceedings um yeah no uh Teresa Polias again outstanding I I wrote my column this week about the fact that she has been so good for Sydney for so long but it feels like there is something different about her season this this year and her 
her influence on a dead ball and what she can do over a dead ball, I think is unparalleled in the W League. I cannot think of another player who can hit a ball as well, as dangerously and as consistently as Teresa Plyas. And the fact that she got the two assists for Sydney's two goals against Adelaide, I think were a perfect demonstration of that. Um, she, I think now leads the league in, in uh, goal assists as a result of that. She takes all of their corners. She takes all of their free kicks. And every time it goes in into that six-yard box, that 18-yard box, you feel like something could happen, which you, can't, you don't really feel that way about when it comes to a lot of other free kick takers in the W League. And it's especially impressive in this Sydney FC setup because they don't exactly have a whole lot of height to, uh, to you know, to really maximise the, the balls of, of Teresa Polias. That was a weird phrase. <laughs> but you can imagine if Sydney had a player like a Michelle Heyman, a player like a Claire Polkinghorne, someone who is really like a real deadly player in the air to be able to get onto, onto balls like that. Um, but yeah, like outside of uh, Polias being absolutely outstanding once again, um, I, I think the the result was perhaps more of a reflection of Adelaide's mistakes than it was of Sydney's dominance. Um, again, the two goals that Sydney did score pretty much came down to goalkeeper errors. Both were headers from corners. Uh, one was when uh, Annalie Grove was basically just bodied off the ball by Courtney Vine. Um, and and Vine and had basically a free header as well. Like she wasn't tracked by a defender, and it was a very similar situation with Remy Simpson as well. Like she just got to the ball first, you know, in amongst a pack of players. And Annalie Grove, she's a very young goalkeeper. This is really her first serious crack at, at consistent W League minutes, and so she perhaps doesn't have the kind of um, embodied confidence of a Tegan Micah, for example, who can just come out and absolutely crash through a group of players and punch a ball away. But that's fine. You know, that's it's all a learning experience for her. And I think she's still been very impressive despite that. Um, I thought Adelaide, they they took they took a lot of time to settle into this game. And I think a big part of that is because they were playing on synthetic, um, which they hadn't played on all season and they haven't they haven't trained on all season either. And you could sort of see the both like both teams really struggled with that. Um, you know, Sydney struggled in the last game that they played at Chroma Park on synthetic uh, turf as well. You know, the ball, it just, it bounces differently. It spins differently. It holds up differently. The weights of your passes are different. They have to be different. Sometimes the ball doesn't settle in the grass appropriately. So you have to take an extra touch or two. And it, it, it was just frustrating to watch all these players having to make all these micro adjustments and take an extra beat or an extra moment to make a decision because it, 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 it really affected the flow of their um, of their of their respective team uh, dynamics, I think. So yeah, that was frustrating, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about that um, in the boot later on. But yeah, again, I don't think it invalidates Adelaide's um, performance at all. I don't think it invalidates Adelaide's season or their team at all. I thought they were still quite impressive. Um, I think. Dylan Holmes is emerging as a really important and prospective uh, Matilda's bolter. You know, I, I've, I talked about Emily Condon when I wrote about this for the W League website, but Dylan Holmes is really, really up there as well. She's really busy. She's really dedicated. She runs and runs and runs and runs. Her GPS data must be absolutely off the charts. And she's also just such an important leader. You know, she's the, the, the captain this season and she's only 23. Um, but she plays a really crucial role in that midfield and she 
tries to take things into her own hands sometimes when she feels like her team needs a bit of a boost. And I think that's really admirable. So, yeah, I mean, it, despite the circumstances of the shitty pitch, um, it was, I thought it was a, a pretty decent game and it was a good reflection um, of where both teams are at. And I thought it was a really good response from Sydney FC as well, coming off the back of their loss to Brisbane. I think, yeah, it was it was a much needed win in terms of the the results against Brisbane Raw. But I don't know if you guys felt like this, but all of a sudden, maybe it's because we had been talking Sydney up so much in the lead up. But even though they they won, there really was an element of the, I suppose, the gloss of Sydney FC being removed watching them. Like obviously they still played well. Polias was sensational. There was still a lot of all the things that they were doing before that Brisbane Raw loss, but now watching it all of a sudden, it was like, you know, we kind of just saw them like, oh, yes, they are fallible and these are the ways in which, you know, they can be broken down and stuff. I don't know if that was just me reading uh, too much into the result. But um, Adelaide were really sensational. It was great to see Matilda McNamara get her debut goal for uh, Adelaide, uh, a nice header. It was lots of a good day for set piece goals up at Chroma Park. And I think um, just what you said on Dylan Holmes, Sam, like her leadership qualities are so obvious, not only like in the way she plays, but also every time you hear her, you know, halftime interviews, off-field stuff, just it kind of oozes out of her very naturally. Um, yeah, so we, we continue on with Dub. Um, we've got a double dub on Thursday night this week we've got Western Sydney taking on Melbourne City before Perth hosts Sydney obviously with time zone that makes perfect sense so can't wait to get around that one on Friday we've got Newcastle hosting Adelaide which should be an interesting clash based on where both of their seasons are and we wrap things up with uh, Victory and Canberra on Sunday Canberra really need a win I think that's an understatement uh, and victory will want to add to their current little streak of wins so it's another exciting round of W League we can't wait to to watch it and start yapping on about it next week but um, we'll move into some international chat there was uh, the international break this week so no league action but there were a couple of exciting things that happened in and around. We had Matilda Amy Harrison re-signing for PSV, so she'll be in the Netherlands until the 2022 season, which is awesome. She's been really great over there, Um, really cemented herself into this side, has been playing in all the competitions and has just had a, is doing really well over there. So after her kind of injury uh, issues, it's nice to, to see her playing, playing well and playing really consistently. Uh, In terms of other clubland things on an international scale. We've got the Champions League round of 16 coming up from next week, which you can all watch on Sports Flick. We'll definitely give them a retweet so you can have the links to watch all those matches because, as we mentioned last week, there are some tasty clashes involving some of our Tillies. Um, I suppose then on national team international kind of news, we had Optus Sport announced the broadcast rights for the 2022 Women's Euros, which is hella exciting to uh, be able to watch. It's a real statement that we can now get all these major tournaments in very legal ways, which is exciting for long-term women's football fans. So can't wait to 
get to that tournament. But uh, let's get into the boot. Sam, you ba- you basically uh, prefaced yourself here with the boot, but uh, take it away. Give us the, the too long didn't read and then uh, crack straight into what we're booting this week. Yeah, so I sort of foreshadowed it uh, when we were talking about Sydney's game against Adelaide on Sunday. Uh, The synthetic field at Cromer Park in Manly has been used for W League games for a number of seasons now. It's currently the only one that's being used in the W League. It's also the only one being used in Australia's top uh, senior leagues more generally. Um, This is a, a, a trend that you know, has been going on for a number of years in, in the W League as well. There were a few years ago, Sydney FC played at um, Lambert Park in Leichhardt, which is also a synthetic field, and at Seymour Shore in Miranda. And these surfaces, I don't know for anybody listening who has ever played on, uh, on natural grass versus an artificial field, but they are very, very different. And people might remember... Uh, back in 2015 during the Women's World Cup in Canada, there was a huge controversy around the use of artificial fields for the tournament. Um, There were photos that came out of national team players who had been playing and training on these surfaces in the summer, Canada's summer, and uh, emerging from those sessions and those games with pretty severe burns and grazes and cuts all over their body as a result of um, sliding, tackling, falling on the uh, artificial surface. And there were some, uh, some fields got so hot that they actually started to melt some of the the boots of the players as well. Um, So I, my, my column for the Guardian this week is about artificial surfaces and how they are, so they've sort of become a, a bit of a metaphor for the, the different sort of structural barriers that women's football continues to face. There's a, a, growing, um, a growing chorus of W League players who do not want to play on synthetic fields anymore. Um, I interviewed Ali Green for the piece from Sydney FC. She plays at Cromer Park regularly for Manly United during the NPL, uh, NPLW uh, winter season. And even she said that, you know, even though she's grown up on that pitch, even though she plays on that pitch almost weekly throughout her entire year, she still struggles. She still struggles to get used to it. The transition from a natural grass field to an artificial field is is really difficult on the body. It's really difficult on players just trying to adjust to the different uh, different behaviour of the ball. Um, and it's And it's sort of just to the point now where, you have to start to question why they continue to to play there at all, given that they have provided so much feedback, not just to the clubs, but also to the PFA um, about the fact that they don't, they don't like playing here. They don't enjoy playing on that, on that surface. When I sought comment from, uh, from Sydney FC, they said that one of the major considerations when it came to Cromer Park in particular was the atmosphere in the crowd. And I completely get it because Manly is a really big hub for women's football. The Northern Beaches in Sydney um, have always had a really strong women's football community and Cromer Park tends to attract one of the biggest crowds in New South Wales-based W League games um, and really across the entire W League as well. It's always really fabulous going there because everyone in the community really gets behind it. So I, I understand the desire to play there, but um, I 
you know, at the same time, you're not giving your women players the opportunity to continue to build that fan base by giving them the best possible conditions in which to play in that respect. So it's it's a weird sort of um, spiral uh, that, you know, I don't really know if it has much of a, an answer um, outside of replacing the surface with natural grass, but I don't think that that's really on the cards for Manly United from everything that I've heard. They're going to be replacing the field because it is quite old, but they're going to be replacing it with another synthetic pitch. Um, hopefully the technology has improved so much that uh, the, it'll be much easier on the players' bodies in that respect. Um, I don't know. I don't know anything about synthetic pitches outside of that, but the fact that no A-League game has ever been played on a synthetic field, um, it's it sort of... And, and, and also A-League players are not being forced to play on synthetic fields either. That sort of suggests to me that there remains uh, an imbalance and an inequality between the two leagues and the two groups of players that is another symptom of the sort of the wider structural issues that the W League and W League players have to navigate and negotiate in order to achieve the just even just the same level as their male counterparts, you know. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not, uh, not a huge fan of the synthetic because the players aren't a huge fan of the synthetic. And I think that because players are everything in football, they are the thing that we are there to watch. They are the thing that makes football what it is. We need to give them the the environment and the conditions in that that will allow them to to be their best. And if we can't do that, then the only people that we can blame for the, the product not flourishing is ourselves. So yeah, big old boot to the synthetic. Ah! I was gonna say, Angela, have you played? Are there any synthetic pitches like down here that you've played on or dealt with or whatever in in your capacity as Madame President or Vice President? Yeah, actually. Um... So the club that I volunteer and play for, we do sometimes use um, Clifton Park in Brunswick, um, which is, yes, if the worst place you could possibly play a practice game it has happened before and it's sort of the one that we have to go to as backup if needed um, because we don't my club doesn't have access to our own grounds sometimes we do need to hire it and it's so uncomfortable playing on it especially in like um pre-season heat if you get a hot day like 30 degrees it feels like 35 degrees on there your feet feel really hot it's just uncomfortable and that's what I found really surprising because I didn't I wasn't aware that Chroma Park was synthetic but um it is one of those things that like fixturing as well in the summer it doesn't make sense to put games early because we know that in Australia in summer sometimes it gets hot and like it seems to an interesting choice to put games on synthetic at all can taking that into consideration as well um because yeah, it's just not a good good time at all. Um, we have a, a range of other issues with <laughs> pitches that don't necessarily relate to synthetic, as is the way at grassroots. But um, yeah, just from a firsthand experience, I'm like, why is a professional being made like a professional soccer player whose job it is to play soccer? Why are they? Why would they be made to be play on a pitch? And also, the pitches argument it extends, I think not just to synthetic, but some of the pitches here in Melbourne, like Epping Stadium has like consistently been terrible in terms of like the, the turf quality 
four years and we keep having games there, even though the turf quality isn't improving at all. Like as a venue, I love it. And I think it's a great spot to watch some football, but in terms of the actual, yeah, ground itself, it's a bit of a mystery to me that that's still going on, that it's still crap. I don't know, but yeah, you're absolutely right, Sam. And to me, it seems like it is one of those things where sometimes decisions are made in the women's game because it's logistically easier or it makes sense or it's more affordable or whatever it might be, but then it falls on the players to have to push back from that because their perspectives and their experiences, they aren't actually being considered. Um, Whereas that, that pushback really has to happen in men's football it's like not necessarily a burden like a hurdle being put up on purpose but it's one that still needs to be tackled nonetheless and it's just sometimes can be a little bit exhausting as all fans of the women's game know it's like we we don't want more things to complain about but here we are (laughs) yeah exactly and that's why I think it's uh, it's really important to credit the work that the PFA do in a lot of the W League spaces, you know, they have started to release um, weekly pitch ratings, for example, on their social media channels, which have been really illuminating. And it's interesting that you mentioned Epping because Epping is actually one of the two uh, the two fields used in the W League this season that actually ranks lower than Chroma Park in terms of the pitch ratings that are provided by players. So Epping and Dorian Gardens in Perth are, are both have both been given a two out of five average so far, whereas uh, Chroma has been given a three out of five, which is still really not great. And it also doesn't take into consideration atmosphere and crowd and things like that. I think it's just based on the pitch. Um, and like not, uh, players anonymously are selected from uh, from the teams, and they they give their their rating on the day in terms of uh, the hardness of the surface, it's the smoothness, the overall quality, things like that. Um, so yeah, Epping and Dorian Gardens are not uh, not doing particularly well in that respect. Um, but I think it's also, you know, it's it's also important what you mentioned, Angela, about the fact that A League players don't have to worry about this. You know, this is something that doesn't even cross their minds probably because they they're never confronted with the possibility that they have to move to a a surface that they are completely unfamiliar with and and perhaps even uncomfortable on, and therefore it's they have like the mental space in their head to to no longer have to worry about something like that. And when we think about the fact as well that like the WLE season is so short and the pressure that these players have on their bodies is so much more than what it is on an A-League player who has the the time and the season length to recover from injuries and stress fractures and all that sort of stuff. The, I guess the, the mental burden that W-League players must have when they know that they're going to be playing on a surface that they are worried about, that they worry that that might injure them, that it might contribute to, you know, muscle fatigue or, or other kinds of injuries like that. That's another sort of thing that they have to try and, negotiate you know um so yeah I mean like it's not just it's not just that they have to play on a on a synthetic surface it's all the stuff that comes with the knowledge that they're playing on a synthetic surface and what that means and how that how it feels to be told as a W League player you're playing on a shitty artificial pitch um and we don't really care how you feel about it because you've provided us feedback but you're still going to play there because we want the crowd like I don't think that that's a like it's I understand it from the like from the perspective of Sydney FC from the perspective of the leagues I understand it but it's the players at the heart of it and if you don't give the players the things that are going to maximize what they are doing then 
I, you know, I, I just think it's sort of backwards to focus on the other stuff when the other stuff is a result of what the players are doing, if that makes sense. And also given like we didn't have this information um, a few years ago, but we do know now that like women's players are more susceptible to like ACL injuries, um, quite serious stuff in a lot of ways, maybe it's like that should be enough to prioritize. Like to me, the worst possible outcome of playing on a bad pitch is a serious injury that comes from a consequence of that. And that should be enough to push. Yeah. To value the well-being and the health of the your employees or yeah, the people that you have responsibility for as a league or as a club. But yeah, it is it is tricky. I think we've thoroughly kicked the shit out of the synthetic pitch <laughs> issue. My, my thing very much is if you playing at a local level are like it's uncomfortable, I don't enjoy it, I don't think it's good. And then, you know, you take the step up for someone like Ali Green who's playing W League level saying, we don't enjoy it, it's uncomfortable, I find it harder to recover. And then you go all the way up to the likes of like Alex Morgan playing at a World Cup saying, it's uncomfortable, we find it hard to play on, it's not really conducive to our best football or our best health. I don't, if if across the board it's not good, I don't understand why it's still being used. But it also, you know, I, I don't want to not acknowledge the fact that facilities and grounds in this country are a whole beast and thing and don't have time to talk about that. Just wanted to acknowledge that I understand the difficulty of getting facilities and surfaces that are up to scratch and whatever, but also maybe just don't make them synthetic. I don't know. I don't know. But while we're on the topic of pitches and grounds, we got a question from Mick a couple of weeks ago asking about what the the best or the optimal dub venues are. So I reckon it's worth a discussion now. Sam, what what's your kind of optimal dub venue? Yeah, no, I think it's worth yeah, I think it's worth uh, mentioning because there are some grounds that have the best of both worlds. Like it's not mm-hmm. like it's impossible to have a really good pitch and also a really good atmosphere and a good crowd. And like number two sports ground in Newcastle is the perfect example of that. Yeah. You know, they, uh, the, the, the crowd um, is always really good in Newcastle for games at that particular stadium. The players have said in the past that they really prefer playing at number two. Um, as opposed to McDonald Jones Stadium as well, because usually uh, if you play at a bigger ground like that, it's part of a double header, and players don't like double headers. So, like, how do you how do you sort of navigate all this? I re- I fully appreciate how difficult it is, and I know that clubs try really hard to tick as many boxes as possible. Um, but uh, you know, looking to an example like a number two sports ground. Um, given how well the players respond to it, you know, it's really it's a really good natural grass surface. Given how well the crowd responds to it, given how accessible it is, all that sort of stuff, it's a it's really the perfect example of what a W League ground should be, and it's not impossible for you know uh, grounds like that to be developed or renovated um, for other you know communities and other teams either. Like Sydney has so many little NPL grounds that are like that, um, which are more than capable of hosting W League games in that respect, but it just so happens that a lot of those grounds do have synthetic surfaces. And I understand the reason why. Synthetic obviously lasts a lot longer than grass, it's easier to maintain than grass, 
Um, so th those are things that you sort of have to weigh up, I guess, in, in all those conversations. But when it comes to grounds that are of a certain standard for W League, players' comfort needs to be taken into account. Um, and if there are grounds that do want to host W League games, I think it, it, eventually it should be mandatory that they have all natural grass fields, unless the technology of synthetic improves to the point where players are comfortable with it. Um, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen in the next couple of years, but yeah, looking at a, a ground like number two, I think is um, it's a good blueprint for, for other kinds of grounds that W League games should be aimed to play on. Angela, you are well-travelled in, in the dub, particularly here in, in Melbourne. What, what's the kind of optimal venue down here for, for dub matches? Oh, there's a lot of, um, yeah, layers to that, going back to the power rankings question as well. There's so many different things that you could look at. Um, just, But I'm just going to go off my automatic, like, vibe reaction when I think of that venue not to be a complete Canberra enough but McKellar Park it's, it's up there yeah, for me 100%. yeah um like I mean everything in Canberra is accessible if you have a car but I think you can actually get there by bus as well um and like canteen great um stadium great field great Vibes, great. Michaela Park, love it. Um, in Melbourne, my favourite Melbourne venue, it's a, probably Lakeside. But in saying that, Lakeside often has like the poorest turnouts for like Melbourne Victory Games, which is really confusing because it's the most central. And it's actually really beautiful as well you've got like the city in the background the surface is pretty good there's a running track around it which is a pain in the ass but you know it, it is that thing about which boxes can you tick um and yeah usually the canteen's up and running the canteen is really important for me um for food like abd stadium wins because of the the kebabs i was talking about this the other day with um friend of the pod tom like i think about the kebab the whole week in the lead up to going to a game there because they're so good stevie smith is no good because like <laughs> we've talked about this before but looking into the sun sometimes like the media box is terrible um you get locked in the other side of like when they close the tunnel so you can't get out so you're just like Wah! So CB Smith is off the power rankings, but I think my, or not the power rankings, my, not not on there. Um, and Epping as well, even though I do love Epping for atmosphere, I, I just, yeah, the inaccessibility of it in a way is quite, is not great. Um, and yeah, I used to travel there by public transport. So I'd ride my bike to the train station, hop on the train and then get off at the other end and ride 20 minutes to the stadium from the train station. So always, it felt like going to Mordor, but <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. But the food is usually, usually pretty good there as well. So, but number one, Not McKellar. I feel like with all the Melbourne venues, it's kind of like here's something that's really redeeming and endearing and really wonderful about this uh, this venue, and here is a absolutely enormous fatal flaw 
about it. Like we can't win with the with the Melbourne venues because like my gut reaction was to say Lakeside as well, but I cannot stand the running track. Like it really does detract from the viewing experience. I like going to CB Smith and ABD because they're close to me, but I know that they're either a pain to get to or as often discussed, it's an architectural nightmare in in Faulkner. So I feel like there's no good answer in Melbourne or no like perfect answer in Melbourne at the moment. So um if we could get some some if the clubs could make their own facilities, I think that would be nice it would be smart long term um but who am i i'm just a little podcast host i don't have suggestions for the clubs here um but yeah we'll switch gears we'll get into some how goods so samantha kick us off with how good so my how good this week uh speaks to the sort of the larger legacy that hosting the women's world cup in 2023 is going to have on women's football in australia Today, coincidentally, is the day that uh, Football Australia is presenting their 2023 legacy plan to the federal government in a, a, a bid to uh, get a whole bunch of funding for a lot of different programs that they're wanting to roll out over the next, uh, not just the next three years leading into the tournament, but also beyond that as well, hence the title of the, the legacy plan. Uh, and one of those um, kinds of threads uh, is sort of the, the, the engagement with history and wanting to ensure that member federations, state federations across Australia um, are sort of playing into that as well. And so today saw the launch of uh, Queensland's Women and Girls Strategy. And on top of that, they have also uh, launched a digital museum, which I think folds really nicely into some conversations some people have been having about the need for Australian football more generally to acknowledge its history and to have some sort of central space for that history to be celebrated. Um, and I think part of that perhaps folds into uh, a plan for there to be a home of football built in and around uh, Women's World Cup momentum and funding as well. So yeah, Football Queensland have launched uh, an online uh, digital museum and had a, a squiz earlier today and it's absolutely fantastic. There's a, an entire section for the women's game going all the way back to the 1920s when the, the, the ban was first introduced. It explores uh, the history of women's football in Queensland according to not just different areas. So going from you know the, the far northern uh, sorts of regions all the way down into Brisbane and the, and the cities and suburbs, but it also explores them through different uh, decades as well, particularly in and around the 70s when um, records and archives sort of just started to, to be seriously put together. So yeah, it's, it's a wonderful initiative and I have a feeling that um, a couple of historians that anybody who is involved in Australian women's football will know quite well, Lee McGowan and Fiona Crawford, who wrote uh, Never Say Die, the history of uh, Australian women's soccer over the last hundred years. I imagine they've been quite heavily consulted in putting this kind of thing together, which is fantastic. Uh, and it's something that I think a lot of other state federations and perhaps even Football Australia could use as a model of what this uh, this overarching national digital uh, sort of museum and, and history uh, projects could really look like. So yeah, uh, Legacy, Football Queensland really doing some, some important things in the women's space over the last couple of months um, and making the history of women's soccer in Australia much more accessible and much more interesting. So yeah, how good. 
so good and it's it's something we talked about when we first started making this podcast and I hope it's something that we'll, we'll kind of touch on more in the future but just respecting and acknowledging and publicizing the history of the women's game in this country is so bloody important so it's awesome to see that football Queensland is is pushing ahead with that um Angela how good from you I've got like a, a bundle how good this week um the first one is um Kind of me tooting my own horn, but also tooting someone else's horn. Speaking of horns, Marissa did a really funny tweet about horn section in Australia soccer. So you should definitely share that on our Twitter, Marissa. Um, But anyway, yes. So um, as mentioned in our boot, I do like I play outdoor for a grassroots club and I I volunteer there as well. Um, So Melbourne Uni Soccer Club. And um, we have we talked about this a a couple of weeks ago about W league having a pride round and we've been really lucky for the past couple of years, Melbourne uni have been able to host a pride round every year. Um, And yeah, last year, obviously no soccer in Victoria. So in lieu of that, our designated pride ambassador, Kat Huang um, made a series of videos um, highlighting some of the experiences and I guess not necessarily issues, but complexities and um, conversations around LGBTQIA plus people in sport. Um, and I helped Kat with that. And the most recent one has gone up. Um, so, yeah, that's my how good. I, I really love the videos. Kat's really talented at what they do. So I just wanted to pump that up. Um, and for this video, we spoke with um, Luca Trimboli, who's not actually a football player, but was previously an athletics, like a runner. Um, And then when he um, started his transition, he moved into circus and performance. And so it was a really great chat um, to speak to him and just great to be able to showcase some of these stories, both at our club and beyond that as well. Um, Yeah, so that's that's my how good. I'm just really proud of my friend um, for the great work that they're doing. And it also follows on... I guess moving forward, I think the inclusion of of gender diverse people is going to become a bigger conversation in sport. Um, And there's definitely, Sam did a great article about the legacy framework for the 2023 Women's World Cup. And one of the big quotas that's thrown around is like 50-50 participation, but for me, and I know FFA have, or sorry, Football Australia have made a commitment to developing frameworks for the inclusion of trans and gender diverse people, but I definitely think it's something that can be done simultaneously and it does need to, I guess, be included in that framework as well because we want to make sure as a football community that we're acting proactively rather than reacting to things as they happen. But, yeah, um, seeing something in football regarding that um, over the past week or so we had Quinn who plays for the Canadian women's national team. Um, They came out as trans, I believe a year or so ago, Um, but they had, yeah, they had their name listed um, as their Quinn. So that's their name now um, when they played this past week in the She Believes Cup. And it's just like, it is one of those things where it's like, that should be the expectation. You know, we should, use people's pronouns and that sort of thing but at the same time I think it's awesome that um yeah a trans athlete is able to continue in that professional space and be included on 
on an event at that scale. And yeah, that's like a how good. I guess you got the grassroots thing there in the the opposite as well. Um, yeah, and I did have I didn't want to like <laughs> boot um, football Australia without doing my research. So I did have a look, and they, as I mentioned, they have made um, a commitment to working on these things over the future, which will be really great to see because previously just from my perspective I haven't seen a whole lot um, from federations and leadership in that area and it's something that sometimes you have to feel out a little bit and so having that that leadership will be um and those frameworks from the top down will be really important and will also mean that no one has an excuse you know in terms of including gender diverse and, and trans people in their sporting programs how good it's just it's as you said it's so base level so the more we normalize that the the better so it's good stuff all around and we'll definitely give a a retweet or a share to the the videos that your mate made because we've got to pump up the grassroots as well on the international stage like the the situation with Quinn it's just like this is how easy it is you know this is how easy it can be an athlete comes out and says, actually, this is how I identify the national team and all the competitions that they're involved in are like, okay. And then that's just it. And then there's no, there's no controversy. There's no sort of bullshit around it. That's just like, this is what they've decided to do. And this is how we respond to that. Like, that's how easy it is. Um, so I think that's a real credit to the, you know, to, to Canadian soccer and that federation for not making it any bigger or more dramatic than what it was because that, that's just it. And I think, as you say, Marissa, normalising that is so important. Like that is the kind of thing, not blowing it up, but just making it what it is, is so important in terms of setting a precedent for other kinds of athletes who may have been experiencing these kinds of things and want to, to come out and be themselves and to have their correct pronouns used in these kinds of contexts. And now, you know, Quinn has actually sort of made history by becoming the first trans athlete on a national women's soccer team in that way. And so, so many other athletes can perhaps feel more comfortable and safer in doing the same. So, yeah, I think it's fantastic. Like talking about legacies, this is this is definitely a legacy that's being left here. Absolutely. And uh, a quick how good from me. I hope to revisit it in about a month's time. Adelaide United announced that their the W League team will be back playing at Climarsh Stadium, which is you love to see it. We love you know, the girls getting the opportunity to play at these big stadiums. But uh, thanks to one of their sponsors, uh, My Money House, they have bought out every single ticket. So the intention there is that basically you can get to this game for free and the intention is to break the current W League attendance record, which is 3,105. So the capacity of Coopers is about 16,500. There's almost no excuse not to go and it's this kind of I suppose proactive forward thinking almost kind of you know we're beating our own drum we've got a good product we've got a a good team come and watch us come and break history come you know come on this journey with us women's football's great we're we're giving you you know all the tools you need to come and have a great time so get around it so I want to I want to say first of all Adelaide get around it the 21st of March it's at uh yeah United taking on Western Sydney it'll be a great game you don't have to pay for your ticket 
it's going to be excellent. So get around it. And I think a lot of credit needs to go to the club for like pushing this as an agenda. We see other sports, particularly here in Australia, the AFLW kind of comes to the front of mind where just that kind of pushing your own agenda and beating your own drum and getting that support up, they do it so well. And that's how you end up with 50,000 people at an AFLW grand final. So there's no reason why this Adelaide United game can't break the W League attendance record. And I think it sets a precedent to then, you know, start building momentum and crowds, not only for the W League side, but ahead of the Women's World Cup in 2023. And I just, I love it all as a concept. So I hope, you know, once that game is played, I get to give them a how good because they've broken the W League attendance record. But for now, I think it's such a great initiative and massive kudos to Adelaide United. So how good to the Reds. Um, but yeah, so that's that's us for another week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, remember, you can find us on the ESPN app. Go and download it. You can also find us on ESPN.com.au. You literally cannot miss us. It's hot pink on the homepage. You, you, I can't stress this enough. You cannot miss it. We're right there. You can also find us on all the usual podcast sites, so Apple, Google, Spotify, please leave your reviews. We had a couple of lovely ones come in and it just, it makes us all warm inside. So definitely keep them coming. We appreciate them so much. Uh, If you want to get in contact with us, you can find us at the Far Post Pod on all social medias. But uh, until next week, thanks for tuning in and uh, see you.